there was a light mist coming down. It was just a beautiful, gorgeous day. And I'm like, oh, I've never felt rain this beautiful before. <laughs> and I was laughing because the trees, the the moss on the bark of the tree was just so green. And the bark was just extra textured and the mountains were extra textured. And I was laughing at myself because it was like, oh, girl takes mushrooms and thinks trees are pretty, right? You know, is, this, <laughs> is it all it is, you know? This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen, and welcome to part two of the Shroom Boom. Last episode, we explored some of the practical magic of mushrooms for foraging, feeding, finding community. You might remember our guest, Maria Pinto, talking about going down to the Festival de Angos, or Mushroom Festival, in Oaxaca, Mexico, and how much fun she had. Maybe some of the most fun I've had in the woods was in Oaxaca at that fiesta, because, I mean, what's better than starting a mushroom hunt with a mariachi band? Like, <laughs> I've never, I've never seen the likes of that. And I did not plan this, but that is where today's story of women and a different kind of mushroom hunt begins. But first, a few facts. At least 300 kinds of mushrooms contain an extra special ingredient called psilocybin. When you ingest it, your body turns that psilocybin into its twin flame, psilocin. That is the power couple that brings on euphoria and psychedelic side effects, depending on how much you take. In 1958, a Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffman, also known as the father of LSD, he was the first one to figure out how to synthesize psilocybin and psilocin, which he also got to name. But Hoffman's eureka moment in the lab was the end of a whole domino effect that started a few years earlier in a hut in Oaxaca. That's where a Mazatec curandera, or medicine woman, named Maria Sabina reluctantly agreed to allow these two white dudes to join in a sacred mushroom ceremony. One of those white dudes was an executive at J.P. Morgan Bank, and the other was his travel photographer. More on that story later, but partly due to those guys going down to Oaxaca, Psilocybin and psilocin were ultimately banned in most countries in 1970, although some places allowed for religious exemptions. And guess what, y'all? It is much faster and easier to criminalize something than uncriminalize it. And yeah, I know that's not a word. Right now, Oregon and Colorado are the only two states where psilocybin is decriminalized. But they might not be alone too much longer because it turns out those sacred mushrooms, the ones that indigenous peoples in Central and South America have been consuming for centuries, yeah, they are, scientifically speaking, pretty fucking great. <laughs> they are non-addictive and, in fact, can effectively treat addiction 
Psilocybin therapies are also looking incredibly effective for treating anxiety, depression, PTSD. Yes, love it, need it. And as I was reading up for this episode on ladies, my eyes nearly popped out of my head as I learned that psilocybin also looks clinically promising for OCD, addiction, eating disorders, in addition to so many anecdotal reports of psilocybin really assisting with things like menstrual disorders, sexual dysfunction, even ADHD, the list goes on. How, though? Or what if I just want to eat mushrooms for fun? And why does the psychedelic community have a white boys club reputation? These are the kinds of questions today's guest, Jennifer Chesick, recently set out to answer. Jennifer is a science and medicine journalist and fact checker, a mushroom enthusiast, and author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women. I really wanted to set up why we needed this book for people assigned female at birth. In in many cases, more women are using some psychedelics more frequently than men. And that was a that was a surprise to me at first. But then when I dug a little deeper, it made so much sense to me because there is there's a global drug survey of 2020. It comes out every year and they focus on different things. But in 2020, they were looking at gender differences. And uh, they looked at what are the differences as to why people use different psychedelics. And women tend to use psychedelics to self-treat, whereas men tend to use psychedelics a little bit more recreationally. And the reason for that is because women often get gaslit by the mainstream medical system. As an example, I have endometriosis and uh, there's no cure for that. It takes on average 10 years to get a diagnosis. One in 10 people assigned female at birth have it. But, um, you know, the, the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S., designated less than 0.1% of its research funding in 2022 to studying endometriosis. So that's a big frustrating point for me. And so we're trying alternative therapies. And so as a journalist, it felt really crucial to get accurate information out there because clearly there's tons of misinformation about psychedelics out there. In what ways have up until quite recently, it seems like women been really just written out of a lot of this. Right. I mean, so historically, we have several female scientists in the previous research of psychedelics, like before the war on drugs, that are often just discounted. It's not considered. Moving forward, it's very hard for female scientists in this arena to gain footing and get research positions, get their work out there. And then if you look at like the statistics of conferences, the ratio of men to women speakers is a pretty alarming um, in the psychedelic industry. I don't know the exact ratio these days. A lot of times women are brought in uh, for, you know, just certain very specific topics, or they'll bring in people of color just for ceremonies and things like that to like check a diversity box. Plus, it just there's a big bro culture in psychedelics. And I don't I don't love that. I mean, that happens in a lot of different industries, but it definitely happens in psychedelics. And there's a lot of just mansplaining and things like that. And that can really be a turnoff for women that are interested in psychedelics and getting an education about that. And ladies, we need to sidebar for a moment. For all of the mind expansion mushrooms offer, Western psychedelic culture has been weighed down by what I'm going to call 
gonzo masculinity, kind of a fear and loathing in Las Vegas meets heteronormative patriarchy. By that, I mean the early gender rolling of men as psychedelic pioneers and women as their caregiving trip sitters. Like that old saying goes, you know, behind every great man tripping balls for research, there's a sober wife taking all the notes, which did occasionally happen, although in the case of LSD inventor and psilocybin synthesizer Albert Hoffman, it was his female lab assistant Susie who watched over him the first time he self-experimented in 1943. Yeah, that famous bicycle ride that he took when he was like, whoa, this stuff really works. Susie was peddling right alongside him. There's the whole dick measuring contest of who can trip the hardest, grow the wildest strains, travel to the sweatiest, most remote spot in the Amazon to swipe some spore prints and sneak them back to America to cultivate and by happenstance end up with a mushroom variety that looks very much like a girthy, circumcised penis. Yes. That is how one of the most potent psilocybin varieties came to be. And to me, it crystallizes this whole idea of gonzo masculinity. I am 100% serious when I tell you this variety of mushrooms, one of the most potent, is called penis envy. Penis envy mushrooms. They're part of the psilocybe cubensis fungi family, hence the saying that I can guarantee has been uttered on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast at least once. A cube is a cube, except for penis envy. The mycologist who claims credit for the penis envy strain has a gonzo mask story to go with it, fittingly. And no, it wasn't like, hey, I just grew this mushroom and it looks just like a circumcised dick. I should call it penis envy. No, no, no. The way he tells it is he was hanging out with some strippers who saw a bag of these honking mushrooms he had on him. And they said, oh, my God, those look like donkey dongs, quote unquote, to which he replied, do you have penis envy? To which I reply, don't you mean donkey dong envy? I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Foreskin lovers, though, you will also be pleased to know there are now sub-varieties of penis envy, including penis envy uncut. And look, I bet penis envy mushrooms are a ton of fun. I'm not trying to harsh anyone's mellow here. Also, that white boys club environment of psychedelic exploration in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and its whole psychonaut trip sitter binary, those were partly products of that era, sure. But by the time the drugs were banned, the gonzo masculinity it bred had also facilitated ethical and sexual abuses of power by researchers, psychiatrists, and psychedelic guides. And not just on the clinical side of things, it seems like women are making up for lost time. Or should I say, time men lost. (laughs) Hey 
Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. And I believe it, y'all, because I can think of a handful of couples that I know in my personal circle who met on Hinge. Hinge is great for anyone looking to date with intention. No matter if you're part of the LGBTQIA family or not, Hinge helps you find people you actually like. One of the great features about Hinge are their prompts. They help you bring your personality to the front so you can match with people who share your humor and interests. And they listen to you. Hinge's research revealed that bisexual daters want more customization over who they see on dating apps. That's why Hinge just launched their new bisexual preferences, allowing bi and queer daters to have the option to customize preferences for age and height across different genders. Because we all deserve to have more control over our dating experience and go on great dates. So download Hinge and find someone worth deleting the app for. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Moving into psychedelic therapies and also the the research that's happening right now, why does it look so promising for women and people assigned female at birth in particular? Yeah, it's having to do with this idea that there aren't a lot of legit good therapies out there for very many um, conditions that affect women either disproportionately or affect us, only affect us or affect us differently. And so just a weird example, um, this isn't really a condition, but if, if a woman is trying to quit smoking, she has different nicotine receptors than men do. I, I didn't even know this until I started this research, but I learned that all the smoking cessation products out there, like we think of like Nicorette gum or patches or anything like that, they rely on those nicotine nicotine receptors, but they don't work for women for the, I mean, they do to a certain extent, but very in a lesser way than they do for men. So women have a harder time historically quitting smoking. And there's research to show this. So psilocybin is now being studied for smoking cessation. And I think that it could be a very good avenue for women to to quit smoking as the research progresses. So I'm really excited about things like that where researchers are thinking outside the box. We know that psilocybin is being studied for eating disorders. So currently, again, going back to Dr. Natalie Bukastian at Johns Hopkins, she's basically my hero. She, um, <laughs> she's she been studying psilocybin in relation to anorexia nervosa. And so we're seeing some promising results with her, her clinical trial that she has going on right now. You know, circling back to the, the topic of endometriosis, there's not a study out there specifically looking at if psilocybin will help with endometriosis. However, there was this study that's really fascinating to me, and I'm interested to see where it goes in the future or how it evolves. But researchers took four psilocybin extracts and placed it on human cells in a lab, so it wasn't done on people. And they learned that the um, the mushroom extracts reduced the 
expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And um, what we know about endometriosis is that endometriosis lesions or growths in the body, they secrete those pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it's nice to know that psilocybin reduces those pro-inflammatory cytokines and things related to some pain signaling. So that could be a really promising avenue for researchers to study. Hint, hint, you know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so I'm excited about that. And then some researchers at Johns Hopkins, headed by, I believe, Dr. Natalie Gukassian and Dr. Sasha Kane Ryan as well, they did some case studies on women who had used psychedelics. And it was three women, and two of them did use psilocybin. And what they're learning from this case study is that there's a possibility that psilocybin will re-regulate the menstrual cycle because some of the women reported that. And they've also reported a return to having a menstrual cycle after it's stopped. Not related to menopause, but if you've got a condition that is making your cycle irregular or it's disappeared for that reason, it's possible that psilocybin may help it come back and be regular again. So that's what researchers are thinking and they're digging into it more, which I'm so excited about because I think that there could be some potential for things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, endometriosis, just a lot of different things, even, even menopause. And ladies, all of these potential medicinal uses of psilocybin mushrooms are very exciting. I mean, depression, OCD, PTSD, cluster headaches, eating disorders, complex traumas, racial traumas. Incredible. But all of these exciting headlines also come with important asterisks that these are early stage studies. They're often extremely small. We're talking a few people, maybe. And a lot of times the bulk of the psilocybin research happening is based mostly on white cisgender men, which is partially a product of the whole clinical trial process. Like, across the board, it is common for phase one trials like this to get very picky about throwing uteruses into the mix. And if you want to hear a whole conversation about that and issues of diversity in clinical research trials, head to the Unladies Room, where I interviewed a longtime Unlady and clinical trial researcher all about it. I, uh, clearly, I'm not an indigenous wisdom expert. I don't. I didn't grow up in in that culture, and it's it would be inappropriate for me as a white woman to just be sharing indigenous wisdom from my own brain. You know, I did talk to indigenous wisdom expert. She focuses on womb care using psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, and she calls it mush womb consciousness, which I love. Her name is Mama De La Maiko. I mean, that's what she goes by on Instagram. Her actual name is Michaela De La Maiko. So I talked to her and brought in her wisdom on things like the menstrual cycle. Um, I did also talk to Natalie Villanova, and she actually introduced me to this idea of a two-eyed seeing concept, which is a um, it's a concept that was introduced by a Mi'kmaq elder named Albert Marshall, and he's of the Eskathoni First Nation. The concept is that as we are researching anything, we really need to be bridging mainstream science with indigenous wisdom. We tend to think of mainstream science as a process of doing something over and over again to reproduce the same results, but that's exactly what indigenous cultures have done with psilocybin for however many years, like dating back 
forever, especially when we're talking about things like set and setting, which is your mindset going into a psilocybin journey. Your setting is the what's around you and who's around you and, you know, just your feelings of comfort and safety with that in mind. And a lot of the practices around ceremony with psilocybin are rooted in indigenous wisdom, including set and setting. And so that's why that indigenous wisdom culture is so important. Plus, there's the story of Maria Sabina and the history of how psilocybin even came to the mainstream U.S. culture, right? How did we even get that? It's because a white man named Robert Gordon Wasson, and he was a J.P. Morgan executive, and he was also kind of an amateur mycologist, although his wife was like the better mycologist, is my understanding. Of course, we don't hear about that. But he went down to this village where Maria Sabina was in Mexico, and she did ceremonies with psilocybin and was revered in her community for that work. And white men weren't allowed to partake in ceremonies just because of the culture. But he convinced her by lying to her, saying he really needed to partake in the ceremony. I think the lie was that his son was missing or something, and he needed to find him, and he wanted to have a journey to do that. And so he lied to her, and the agreement was that if I allow you to partake in this ceremony, you cannot go back to the United States and tell everyone about it, share with them my name or my location. So he agreed to that. But of course, what did he do? The minute he got back to the U.S., he told everyone. Suddenly, everyone knew where she was, and and tons of people, tourists, started flocking there. Like Walt Disney went, and some of the Beatles, and you know, just it was crazy. All these tourists started flocking to this village, and that caused a big problem for Maria Sabina because the village kind of turned against her. They were angry at her for bringing in all these tourists, even though this wasn't her fault. They ended up burning down her house. And I believe her son was murdered in some capacity regarding this. So it's just, it's a really unfortunate, horrible origin story of how essentially psilocybin became known in the United States. That's stunning. I mean, not surprising for like a white dude from J.P. Morgan to <laughs> maybe right? not stand by his word. But exactly. I mean, you think about that and then compounded, you know, a few decades afterwards with the war on drugs and just the criminalization, essentially, of black and brown communities. It's really messy, to put it lightly. We've had this history with the the cannabis industry where, like, it really was built on the backs of black and brown people, as you said, and then they were incarcerated for that. And now we had this total whitewashing in the cannabis industry and people are still incarcerated for cannabis offenses, which is ridiculous. And then we're having a similar thing happen with psychedelics and industry in general. We're repeating that history. It's getting whitewashed with pharmaceutical companies. You know, they're making synthetic psilocybin. And, you know, that is all headed by, in large part, by white people. And ladies, are you looking for a game-changing listen? I want to tell you about a podcast I really think you'll like. On Be The Way Forward, AnitaB.org president and CEO Brenda Darren Wilkerson is diving into some incredible chats with tech trailblazers like Arlen Hamilton and creative powerhouses like Janelle Monet. This isn't just another tech talk. It's your front row seat to the minds shaping the future. Ready to drive change? Be part of the movement and get plugged into Be The Way Forward podcast wherever you stream your favorite shows.
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Well, will you tell me about this retreat that you went to? Certainly was something that I'd always wanted to do, but had never taken the leap. And I had a lot of nervousness surrounding it. I I started to research, like, where could I have an experience? And I know that there are, you know, retreats in Mexico or other places and the, the... Stuff in Oregon wasn't really quite happening yet, so I couldn't just go there. And so I was trying to figure it out. And I was like, well, maybe I'll go to D.C. and just like rent a hotel room and go get shrooms at one of the dispensaries and I'll hire a random trip sitter. And I'm like, well, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) So I did not do that. But I kept researching and I finally came across this guy. His name is Gabriel Castillo and he operates a a business called Finally Detached. And he's an indigenous person. And so um, I felt really that really resonated with me and that it was somebody who this is part of his culture and you know he's really done a lot of investigation into that culture and approaches psilocybin in that way and so um i just went and i met him this sounds crazy when i say it out loud and i wrote about this in the book but i went to essentially a cabin in the woods and met a total stranger and did (laughs) shrooms with him and his mom which is really weird but um also perfect but he was he was really great and made me feel really comfortable beforehand where we had several conversations on the phone we did a you know some video conferencing so that i could feel really comfortable and he was gauging what did i want to get out of the experience what traumas um have been in my life? What medications am I on? What medical conditions do I have? So he really made me feel safe and that he was vetting me just as much as I was vetting him. He insisted he would bring a female trip sitter, which is, was something that was really important to me to have a female there as well. And and it turned out that he brought his mom because she works with him, which is fabulous. Like the first night I got there, we did a journey right away, but that was only about a two gram journey. And then the next day we started like right away in the morning and that ended up being about a 3.5 gram journey, I would say. Both were uh, very profound and um, just really meant a lot to me. And I could certainly explain why if that's a question that you have later, but I'll, let, I'll give the floor to you, back to you. Is the amount of like two grams and three and a half grams, is that more on the micro dosing side of things or is this like a full trip? That's a macro dose. So full trip uh, anywhere in that two, three, four would be what's called a macro dose. And it's typically what's used in like a psilocybin clinical trial or a therapeutic experience that you do with a therapist. Higher than that, you get into five grams. That's what's called a heroic dose. And I don't necessarily recommend that for beginners because you're going very deep into your trip. Um, and then a micro dose, just for context, would be a, like about 0.1 or like a tenth of a gram, essentially. And so that is just almost very minuscule compared to what a macro dose is. The first journey the night before was like lying on the floor on a mat with an eye mask and sound bath around me and all that. And one of the first things I felt was almost these threads of light connecting me to everyone that I know and love and who I know loves me back and supports Mm. me. And I could just really feel their love and my love for them like surging back and forth on this current. So I think one of the things that was so profound was 
we often know we have a support system. We know we have our friends or whatever, but to really feel it was such a profound thing. And it's it's something that I've carried with me ever since then. Sometimes like when I talk about that, I can almost feel the ter- tears coming on because it was so magical to feel that love there. And then the next day in nature, a storm rolled in. And so I had to go inside and suddenly my trip, it was so metaphorical, like suddenly my trip turned dark, you know, and, but uh-huh. it was a really profound darkness. But it was so weird how the storm rolled in symbolizing this sudden like deeper journey and leaning into something a little bit more difficult. And the thing that that was is that I've had a lot of anxiety in middle age. I'm 44 about the eventual loss of my parents there. My mother is in her early 80s and my father is just a few years younger than her. And they've had some health problems over the years. And so I also help extensively manage their health care. And it's like I'm constantly dealing with it and It was like the mushroom essentially forced me to look at that. And it really taught me that I do have the tools to get through this difficult thing that I imagine is going to be just this unending wall of grief and horribleness for the rest of my life once I lose that. Like that's, I know that's not true anymore. Mm. So even though this anxiety uh, and almost a challenging section of the trip had come up, on the other side of that, it was like the most peace and euphoria I've ever felt in my entire life coming down from that like high level of anxiety, but still being on the mushroom. And the storm had let up and my my guide was like, "We, you can go back outside now. And again, metaphorically, the sun's coming out and I'm feeling like so much better and this profound sense of peace. Sounds like the best weekend. Yeah, it was so wonderful. And I just remember driving back uh, home. I was only about four hours away from home and, uh, you know, drove back and just this big, this big silly grin on my face as I'm driving down the highway. (laughs) You know, I'm like, I'm sure truckers are like, what's wrong with her? What's she on? (laughs) But it was the essentially the afterglow of the experience. And it really lasted quite a while. What role does consent play? Yeah, so such a good question. Very important. So um, there, it, it plays a huge role in anything that you do with psychedelics. So there's a whole podcast out there on the issues of consent and sexual assault in the psychedelic industry. The podcast is called uh, Cover Story Power Trip. The the back the background of the story really comes from, and the main reporting comes from Dr. Lily K. Ross, and she's amazing, and she really kind of broke the story about it, but. She's raising the awareness that it is there's sexual assault happening um, with guides, therapists, all sorts of people at retreats, that kind of thing. And the thing to keep in mind is that when you do take a psychedelic, you're in a very vulnerable state. Your mind is much more open to having ideas put in your head and you're, you're putting trust in people around you. And that can be really challenging. So yes, consent is very important. And I encourage anyone to, if they're working with a therapist or a guide of any sort, if they're going on a retreat and there are facilitators, to have conversations about consent. In fact, if they don't bring consent up with you, that is a red flag in my book, that they're mm-hmm. not even thinking about that. And in terms of consent, um, you know, they should be asking you, Well, just to get it out of the way, like sex should be off the table. This should not be a part of a psychedelic retreat with, you know, working with a therapist or a guy. They shouldn't be 
having sex with you or touching you in a sexual context at all. That's off the table. But in terms of touch in general, uh, sometimes therapeutic touch is used. So it might be a situation where if you, they may want to ask you if you have a difficult part of your journey come up, or do you want me to hold your hand or do you want me to like pat you on the shoulder? Just a very comforting touch that would be consistent with normal therapeutic practices. Of course, those conversations need to happen in normal therapeutic practices too. But that should happen when you're sober and not on psychedelics at all at that conversation. And um, if you said, hey, I don't want you to hold my hand, they should not ask you then in the session, do you want me to hold your hand right now? You mm. seems like you're going through something difficult. Touch can be totally off the table if you want it to be. If you do consent beforehand to saying, hey, yes, please hold my hand. If something difficult comes up, I would really like that. When you're on psilocybin, then they still need to ask you if that is okay. That is a process of asking for consent and getting it continuously. And you are allowed to say no. You can say no to that, even though you consented to it before. And the thing that can't happen is the consent going in reverse, that you consent to something on the psychedelic that you did not consent to while off the psychedelic. Mm. So you can't, in the middle of the session, be like, hey, please hold my hand. I'm freaking out right now. They shouldn't hold your hand because that is not consent anymore. And so it's just, I think, making people aware that there's an issue out there. What steps can you take to protect yourself? And then if you are going to work with something, someone, try to vet them as much as possible. Read reviews online. There are many communities out there that can help provide resources. So there's moms on mushrooms. I know not all people that are women are moms. I'm not one. And so um, that's just one. There's also plant parenthood would be a good place. Leaning into some of those communities can really help you find the resources that you need to do if you're looking for a therapist or a guide of some sort. My big question is, what do you think it will take to make this accessible? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's going to be a long and complicated journey, I think. But we've already got ketamine that's legalized and, and FDA approved. I mean, ketamine is a little bit of a different type of psychedelic. It's more of a disassociative anesthetic than a traditional psychedelic, but it kind of gives us a framework. Plus, we can look at the cannabis industry, too. We're closer with MDMA in terms of becoming FDA approved, especially to treat PTSD. And so I think we're really close on getting approval for that. And then I think, you know, within a year or maybe maybe two years, we will have psilocybin following that same trajectory. But the other thing we need to do is eliminate stigma surrounding psychedelics because the stigma will continue to prevent insurance companies from covering these things. Now, we are seeing some steps being taken. There's a company out there called Enthia. They already helped the Dr. Bronner's company provide ketamine therapy, like covered by insurance for all their employees. So if they wanted it, you know, I think we're seeing progress there, but I do think that we do need to have insurance cover psychedelic assisted therapy, especially for it to be accessible because without that coverage, it's going to be almost prohibitive for a lot of people in terms of affordability. And then also, we need a lot of education out there. So there's still a lot of healthcare professionals in the mainstream medical community that poo-poo psychedelics. They're like, oh, we don't want people taking psychedelics to manage their PTSD and depression or anxiety when we have all these other great therapies out there like SSRIs, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just kind of roll my eyes at that mentality because psilocybin, for example, you can take that and have lasting effects for depression after one journey. That's what research is showing. I'm not making this up. 
of uh, we're we're seeing in clinical trials that psychedelics are very have a good efficacy rate with depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other things. So why shouldn't we make that a first line therapy rather than being like let's put you on ten different mood stabilizers and antidepressants? Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you about magic mushrooms and women specifically that you want to make sure listeners know? Yeah, I just want to talk about parenting just for a second. Um, yeah. So with in the parenting context, I do have information about using psilocybin while pregnant or breastfeeding. You know, when, when it comes to pregnancy, uh, I'm not saying people should just go out and do psilocybin constantly while they're pregnant or anything, but we don't have any evidence of harm. Likewise, we don't have any evidence of complete safety either. I include information about breastfeeding and what the half-life of psilocybin is so that, and the half-life is when a drug in your system is cut by 50%. And so if you were microdosing or planning a deeper journey as someone who is breastfeeding or chest feeding, there are strategies around that if you wanted to avoid passing it on in your breast milk. And then in parenting in general, I do see some potential here for psilocybin to be beneficial for people. So one, I've heard that it helps people become more present or playful with their kids. So it gets us back to that childlike state of wonder and awe. And that doesn't have to be that you're like on, you're tripping your balls off while playing with your kid or something. I don't <laughs> recommend that. You have to be, you know, cognizant of being a caregiver, of course. But if you were to go and do your own journey and then come back and then and you might enjoy playing Legos more, you know, just things like that. I mean, at this point, my question is almost like, well, what can't it do? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, right. And I don't want to position psilocybin as some, you know, magical cure for everything under the sun. I just see a lot of potential areas where it can help us live our live our best lives essentially and ladies i want to know what y'all think about the psilocybin side of the mushroom world would you try psilocybin therapy? Have you, perhaps? Do you work with maybe a guide or a shaman? Or have you just eaten mushrooms recreationally like I have? It is a very exciting time. There is this whole research renaissance afoot. And I am sus whenever forces like Big Pharma, Big Wellness, Big Law Enforcement are at play not to mention, will any of this money, the, the billions, truly, that could be made off of all of this research, will any of it go back to the indigenous peoples who preserved these mushrooms in the first place? Next week in part three, I'm talking to Dr. Clancy Kavner, who works with the Chikruna Institute, whose social justice psychedelic mission is to do just that, to make sure that the indigenous roots of these plants, these sacred plants, do not get lost. This week, we focus a lot on the gender gap. And next week, we are going to be discovering that psychedelic research has some queer skeletons in its closet and also really big questions about whether the medicalization of mushrooms is the future that we need. 
And in the meantime, send me your voice memos or emails to hello at unladylike.co. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Thank you so much to this week's guest, Jennifer Chesick. Her new book, The Psilocybin Handbook for Women, is available on bookshop.org and all the other book places. You can also follow her on Instagram at Jen Chesick and visit her website at jenniferchesick.com. If you want to hear me tell the story of the first time I ate mushrooms, and also take a closer look at Valentina and Robert Wasson, you know, the J.P. Morgan banker who blew the lid on psilocybin mushrooms in the United States, I'm going to be doing a closer read of the Life magazine cover story that he published in 1955 and the one that his wife published simultaneously in the Salt Lake Tribune's weekly magazine, not exactly as uh, high profile as Life. But I will tell you that I came around to them in a way that I was not expecting. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia or just search unladylikemedia on the Patreon app. $5 a month to come on in and get your bonus episodes. Get in the comments. Join the fun. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production. Executive produced, written, edited, and hosted by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? <laughs> oh, that is a good one. Oh, so like, I, I guess I just have sort of a funny story. I have um, one of my best friends from high school is a guy and um, we've been friends for so long. I was a hockey cheerleader and he was on the hockey team. <laughs> so we've been friends, best friends forever. And we, um, he then, as, as we were going through college, we went to college together and everything. Um, you know, we, he collected different male friends and now it's turned out that um we do guys weekend plus jenny like that's me um people call, <laughs> many people call me jenny from my childhood and so it's i'm allowed to go on this guys weekend with my friend mark and his brother and a bunch of other guys it's just i'm the only girl and i just be one of the guys so that's totally unladylike i get <laughs> i get i would drink way too much beer i act crazy it's so fun <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love that